G'day everyone. I'm preaching to the faithful remnant tonight, but uh, no, we've got many faithful brothers and sisters who are off at Fit Camp. Uh, be excited about Fit Camp, by the way, even if you're not there, even if you think you're missing out and you're getting me on Genesis 3 rather than the fun of Fit Camp. But, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, uh, we had about 10 kids in our youth group, you know, in, uh, on a Sunday afternoon. It's pretty spectacular that now there's something like, I think Brendan told me, over 20 leaders down there at Fit Camp and all the youth, obviously. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? Pretty amazing what God has done. Uh, and many of you over the years have benefited from Fit Camp. Who's been, who went to Fit Camp at some point? There you go. Isn't that great? Well, you know how good it is. But even better here because we're looking at God's Word together. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters on Fit Camp. We uh, pray in particular for all the teenagers there, the members of Snack Youth. There'll be a really great time for them. Uh, and in particular, a time for them to solidify their faith in Jesus and really grow as a disciple of his. But we pray for us now as we turn to this absolutely fundamental and essential chapter of the Bible. Uh, we pray that you'll help us to understand it correctly. You'll help me to preach it clearly and faithfully. But most of all, we pray that we will uh, recognise ourselves in it and in particular see just how much we need our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I talked last week about how important these opening chapters of Genesis are, uh, how Genesis 1, 2 and 3 are really the, the basis of understanding ourselves as human beings. Uh, absolutely essential that we understand these chapters and it's really, really important that you understand they go together. Uh, so if you've not heard the talks on Genesis 1 and 2, go get the podcast, read, read those chapters this week, listen to the sermons, make sure you catch up. Uh, and what this is, is our family history. This is our origin story. Uh, and I said last week how Genesis 2 is sort of like going back to see your family home, where your, your grandfather came from or your grandmother came from or that sort of thing. Uh, and in many ways, it was the positive start of our human story. That's what Genesis 2 is. Genesis 3 then is that point when you discover the dark family secret. So, so Genesis 3, you know in those TV shows where they get a celebrity and they take them back through their history and at some point they discover that great-grandpa was a slave trader or, or at some point they discover that great-grandpa actually had another family with other kids they didn't know about in the next valley in England or that sort of thing and they have to have something like that or it wouldn't be a show worth watching. So that's what this is. This is our dark family secret. That's what Genesis chapter 3 is. But... Genesis 3 is no secret scandal. The consequences of Genesis 3 have impacted every person throughout all of history. And in fact, the reason our world doesn't understand itself is it doesn't believe Genesis 3. And it doesn't understand Genesis 3. This is the start of human sin. This is the start of the human problem that the whole rest of the Bible is dealing with. From this point on, every person who ever lived, including you and me, is a sinner. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which we looked at a couple of months ago, we we'll looked at Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men, because all sinned. What it's saying is, this is where it started. This is where sin came into the world. So in one sense, we can all blame Adam. We can say, it's, all, it's Adam and Eve's fault. That's why we're sinners. The die was cast for all humanity at this point, Genesis 3. Because we all know that we can't just blame Adam. Because from the moment we can think, from the moment we can talk, from the moment we can do anything, we walk in Adam's footsteps. 
That's why it says there, we all sinned. All sinned in Adam's footsteps. And that's sort of the perverse beauty of reading Genesis 3. Now, I really want you to have Genesis 3 open in front of you. If you don't have your Bible here, please put up your hand and get it in front of you because I'm going to be getting right into it and you're not going to be able to follow unless you have it open. So please put up your hand and someone at the back will get you a Bible. But this is the perverse beauty of reading Genesis chapter 3. I keep talking over the last couple of weeks about how these chapters are history, but they're also richly symbolic. And so, yes, this is the story of Adam and Eve. So on the one sense, you're reading about someone else's sin. You're reading about them and what they did. But actually, as you read it, you can't help but see yourself in the story. Uh, You see, what it does is, as it describes Adam's sin, it also illustrates the the decision we make every time we sin. So unless you are willfully blind, unless you sort of go out of your way to avoid it, you cannot help but see yourself. In Genesis 3 as well. So let's get into it. I've called the first section the essence of sin and this is verses 1 to 7. Now remember last week we finished chapter 2 at this incredible high point. You've got man and woman living in paradise, living in perfect harmony with one another and with God, free to eat from every tree, only one limit that God puts on them, one tree where God said that one is not good for you, don't eat that one. So here are Adam and Eve in perfect harmony, starting the job of working God's good creation, but not in the sense that we know work, not with frustration and toil, just with joy doing what God wanted them to do in his world. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 1. And you're actually meant to feel the temperature change. Chapter 2, verse 25 is a beautiful moment. Chapter 3, verse 1 is chilling. You're meant to feel the clashing of gears. So come to chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? As I say, that verse is meant to jar on us after the bliss of chapter 2. Now, the first thing you ask is, who is this snake? Now, was it, was it an actual talking snake? Don't discount that. The devil could do that if he want. At another point in the Bible, God makes a donkey talk to bring a man to his senses. So, you know, the the devil can do that. Uh, Or is it, you know, a snake, a metaphor for the devil, and it's actually the devil there speaking? In the end, it doesn't matter, because what the Bible makes very clear is that it was the devil who was behind the words. So we had that reading from Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, before, said, the ancient serpent is the devil. So where did the devil come from? People love to come up with all sorts of theories about this. If you want to have an interesting discussion at Gospel Team that's actually not that helpful for edifying anyone, just raise that question and everyone will have a theory. And, but the Bible only gives us sort of little hints. that The devil is a fallen angel. That, that he's called the tempter. He's called the accuser. He is the father of lies. And so here he sees God has created this incredible world, this incredible universe. He has made mankind, humankind in his image. And so the devil says, let me get into that and let me tempt Adam and Eve. Now, where does the devil attack? Where is the battleground? It's where it will be for the rest of history. He attacks the word of God. So look at verse one again. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I want you to notice a few things here about how the devil works. First of all, do you see how he just throws doubt on the goodness of God and throws doubt on the goodness of God's word? Because this is the thing, if you you don't think God's word is good, you don't think God is good. 
You see, you, you can't say, Phil's a liar, but I like him, he's a nice bloke. It doesn't work. If you, if you say something about my word, you're crit- criticising me. Well, in the same way, by critiquing God's word, the devil is casting doubt on God's character. And you see, he says, did God really say? It's very clever. He says, I'm not saying he didn't, I'm just asking a question. He's just sort of putting it out there, the idea that God's word is up for discussion. And you see, that is actually, for every year since then, for thousands of years, that is how false teachers work in the church. They don't come and say, oh, actually, God's word doesn't say what you say. They say, does, does God's word really mean what it seems to say? That's how the devil works. That's why I'm always sceptical when someone comes up with a new understanding of the Bible that just happens to fit in with where our culture is going. Because that's how the devil works. Does God's word really say? More than that, look again, look closely. Do you remember how last week I made that big thing about how chapter 2 switched from talking about God with that sort of impersonal word, God up there, to the personal name of God, Yahweh. In our Bibles, it's got capital L-O-R-D, God. You see that? He made that change. So it's, it's to make the point, this is the personal God who loves his people, who has revealed himself to his people. Notice how the devil goes straight back to using an impersonal general word for God. You see that there? That's because it's much easier to question a distant, impersonal God who's out there than it is to question the personal and living God who is close to you and love you. It's interesting how, as Eve contemplates the sin, her language changes like that too. She changes the name she uses for God. And I think that's true for us all. All too often when we are contemplating sin... When we're being tempted and we want to justify it, we do things to keep God at a distance. We we withdraw from fellowship, we we stop reading his word, we we stop praying and we stop talking about God as our loving father and we stop talking about God as our Lord Jesus Christ and we start to talk about God as some distant generic deity in the sky. But those things are the subtleties, in the end the devil is just a liar And so what does he do? He distorts God's word to make it seem like God is harsh and unfair. See how the devil says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Go back to chapter 2. That's not what God said at all. He's just lying. Back in chapter 2, God actually said you could eat from any tree in the garden except this one tree for your own good. So at this point, what should Eve have done? Eve should have just said, don't be stupid. I'll come back to what Adam should have done in a minute. But for now, Eve, she should have said, don't be stupid. Why are you even asking this question? God is good. That's not what God said. Get lost, stupid snake. You know, what are you doing talking anyway, you stupid snake? That is how Eve should have responded. She should have dismissed him out of hand. But instead, what does she do? She opens up the conversation. And that is exactly how temptation works. Instead of running, we start to nibble on it. Instead of running away, we start to just sort of take a little taste and have a see. The the ball is rolling, Eve is open to the idea that maybe she has the right to debate God's word. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the servant, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now at first glance, that sounds like she's standing up for God. But actually, she has started to play the devil's game at this point. Because just compare that to what God actually said back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Go back to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. You'll actually notice she subtly changes it. 
Firstly, she just quietly tones down how generous God is. God actually said, you can eat from any tree or every tree, depending on your translation, in the garden. She leaves out that word, that word of abundant generosity. And then she adds in a little bit more than what God actually prohibited. So God really just said, don't eat from that one tree. Eve adds to it. God said, don't even touch it. She just makes it seem a bit harsher, what God is asking. It's a bit like, excuse me if this is too close to the bone, it's a bit like when the parent disciplines their child and says, if you don't do your chores, you can't go to the party on Saturday night. And then the child goes to their friends or puts it on social media or whatever it is they do and they say, can you believe what my dad said? He said, unless I do everything he says, I'm never going out again. Because that's what we love to do. We, we, we like to turn people against uh, who we're going to disobey and make them seem unfair and not generous and harsh. It's like at work when the boss calls you into the office and says, actually, you haven't been here on time and you, you, you need to pull up your socks. And we go out to our workmates and say, he says he's going to fire me unless... We exaggerate, that's what Eve's doing here. She diminishes God's generosity and increases God's harshness. And so the serpent spots the opportunity. But now he stops being tricky and subtle and he just straight out denies God's word. Look from verse 4. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's not telling you the truth. That's what the devil says. God is lying to you. You won't die. I know God said you'll die. You won't die if you do this. And it's interesting how that is still the lie of the devil. And it's always the first doctrine under attack when false teachers try to lead you astray. Sin isn't that serious. It's actually the first thing. Sin isn't that... It's not really sin. And the next thing they move on to is, hell is not real. God won't really judge you. But worse than that, the devil actually suggests God is not good. He's saying God actually has a hidden agenda. He doesn't want you to eat this because he knows then you'll be like him. God's a killjoy. God's withholding things from you that will make you better, that will, you'll enjoy. And at that point, the devil was articulating the essence of sin. Surely you want to be like God. You don't want God to decide good and evil for you. You want to do it for yourself. That is sin, thinking we can be the king, thinking we have the right to tell God what's right and wrong for us rather than listening to him and listening to his word. And that is still the devil's lie to us. The devil's lie is that God is a killjoy, that God prohibits you from doing things because he just wants you to miss out. The reality is that God's ways are what is best for us. When God's word prohibits something, it's because it's not good for us. When God's word encourages something, it's because it's good for us. The devil wants you to doubt that. God just wants you to miss out. That's what the devil still whispers today. Back to the story. At this point, it's really important to grasp this. At this point, sin is not inevitable. Adam and Eve still have a choice at this point. Do I listen to the devil's lies or do I trust in God and his goodness? And I think it's really important that at this point the serpent disappears from the story. I think that's really significant because the devil may be the tempter but he can't make us sin. 
few years ago, and this is only going to ring a memory for people who are as old as me and who love cricket, so I'm sorry for the 98% of the rest of you. But a few years ago, there was a guy called Hansi Kronja, and he was the South African cricket captain, and he got caught cheating. And he said he was a Christian. And when they said, why would you do it? He said, the devil made me do it. That's not true. The devil doesn't make you do anything. You choose it. Don't blame the devil for your sin and your bad decisions. And so we come to verse 6. It says, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It's actually beautifully written at that point because what it's capturing is how once the Word of God fades into the back of your mind, once, once the love of God fades into the back of your mind, sin suddenly looks so attractive and it looks so alluring. And that's, see the words it uses? Desirable, delightful, good. See, that's what happens. When God fades away, sin looks attractive and so she eats. Now, some people at this point say, oh, typical sexist, patriarchal Bible, it's all the woman's fault. Look closely at verse 6. Adam was with her, it said. And it, it doesn't just mean at that point, it means from the beginning, Adam has been standing there with her. Adam had been there the whole time and he'd stayed silent while the serpent spoke. And he'd stayed silent while Eve responded. And he'd done nothing to stop her doing what God had forbidden. And remember, he was the one who God had given the instructions to. Remember back in chapter 2, Eve hadn't even been made yet when God gave these instructions. Adam heard them. He was responsible. He was the one who had heard the word of God firsthand. And he is the one who's been with God from the beginning. And what does he do? Nothing. Worse than that, he lets her take the first bite and only then, when he thinks nothing's happened, does he take a bite. The New Testament says Eve was deceived, not Adam, and that's true, but that actually just makes Adam's sin worse. He wasn't deceived, he knew what he was doing and he did it anyway. Which is why the New Testament calls it the sin of Adam. Many people have rightly pointed out, what you see in Genesis 2 is a total flipping on its head of how God designed things in chapter 2. What Genesis 3 shows us is a flipping on its head of chapter 2. Adam was made, he was created by God to listen to God. And he was created by God to take responsibility for Eve. Then together they were meant to rule over the creation. Instead what happens? Adam abdicates his responsibility. Together they listen to a creature who they're meant to be ruling and no one listens to God. That's the essence of sin. Well, I'm going to spend a shorter amount of time on the rest of the chapter, what I've called the consequences of sin. So come with me now to verses 7 to 24. Uh, the first, there's four consequences I think you see here. The first is, sadly, death and judgment. The serpent told them, you will not surely die. He lied. At this moment, the moment they bit into the fruit... Death entered the world. By his grace, God didn't wipe them out then and there. He let them live on for many more years yet. But death was now their inevitable destiny. That's the point of verse 24 at the end of the chapter, where they're, they're cut off from the tree of life. From this point on, death was their end. 
You see, death is now the certain end for them and every human being. In fact, the Bible says, apart from Jesus, which we'll come to in a moment, apart from Jesus, we are all dead in our sins. We look alive. We we look like there's something still going on. We look alive, but we've been cut off from the source of life. I think the most powerful and the most clear illustration I've heard for this is that what we are like is a bunch of flowers that sit in a vase. We look beautiful in that vase. We look alive. We look like we've still got colour. But actually, the truth is, from the moment those secateurs cut them off and separated them from the roots, those flowers are dead. And they may last in that vase for a month. The ones I buy seem to only ever last for a day, but that might be the price I pay for them. But... You might look alive, but the Bible says you are dead. And the reality is, just like the flowers in the end go brown and wither, that's what happens to us. That is humanity from this point on. We are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Second consequence of Adam and Eve's sin is shame and broken relationships. If you look at verse 7... It's meant to be the opposite of chapter 2, verse 25, that we saw last week. There used to be total openness. There used to be no shame between the man and the woman. Now they need to cover themselves. Because now they know the reality of their own sin. They know what's going on in their head and in their heart. And so they look at the other person and they say, is that what's going on in their head and their heart too? If they're thinking what I'm thinking, I can't trust them. See, now they need to protect themselves from one another. Human relationships are now broken. She worries, you know, will he take advantage of me? He worries, will she mock me? You see in verse 16 there, look there, it's an allusion to how the marriage relationship will now be distorted and broken. Instead of taking responsibility for their wives and loving and serving them as God intended... Men, from this point on, will be tempted to abuse their strength and misuse their power in abusive ways. Or, at the other extreme, husbands will fail to take responsibility and be passive and not step up and take responsibility. You know how every American sitcom has the dad and husband who gets laughed at because he's so hopeless? Homer Simpson is the example par excellence. Adam is the first Homer Simpson. He's passive. He's a failure because he does not take responsibility. And wives, sadly, often because of the passivity of their husbands, wives will be tempted to want to change God's order. The point is, though, all human relationships are now broken and distorted because of sin. But even worse, there's a break in our relationship with God. It's my third point here. Come with me to verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here is that wonderful Lord God who loved them and made them. Here is that wonderful God they had a perfect relationship with. And now they run away and hide when they sense his presence. Because you can't hide from God, you can't run away from God, God will seek you and confront you, God knows where they are, he knows what they've done, he only asks the questions for their benefit, not his, he knows exactly where they are, he only asks the questions for their benefit, and if it wasn't so sad, this interaction would actually be really funny, look with me from verse 9, it says, so the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid, 
Then he asked, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And what does the man do? Even at this point, Adam could have taken responsibility. Adam could have said, yes, and I'm sorry I did it. I did the wrong thing and I'm sorry. But instead, look at verse 12. Then the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate. Isn't that just what we do? You know, blame her, not me. And just while he's pointing at Eve, Eve joins in, don't blame me, blame the snake. Oh, hang on, where did he go? He's not here. I've got no one to blame. We are all victims, aren't we? It's her fault. It's the devil's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's society's fault. It's my school's fault. Whatever. We all just find someone to blame rather than say, I sinned and it's my fault. You ate the fruit. And you notice there, Adam even tries to blame God. I think it's one of the funniest, saddest moments in the Bible. You see what he says? He says, the woman you gave, she did it. You were the one who made it. I was fine until you fixed my problem last week in chapter 2. And people do that today. If God didn't want me to do this, he wouldn't have made me like this. If God didn't want me to act in this way, he wouldn't have put me in this situation. Do not ever blame God for your sin. James chapter 1, verse 13, look up on the screen. says, no one undergoing a trial or a temptation should say, I am being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Don't blame God for our decision to sin. The point here is, though, there is now a rift between God and humanity. And that brings us to the final consequence, which is God's judgment on this life. The greatest judgment, of course, is death. Man is now destined to die once and after that face judgment. As we saw before, that, that is the great judgment, but God also makes this life, up until our death, hard because of our sin. We'll get to some optimistic parts in a second. See, humanity was meant to fill this earth and subdue it, that's what we're meant to do. From now on, that will be a constant struggle. Verse 16, look there, says, now there will be anguish in childbirth for the women. Verse 17 says, the earth is now cursed, work is now hard and dissatisfying. You know, when you come home from work and you think, was that really worth it? That's the way of the world since Genesis 3. There's, there, there's not meant to be famines in our world, there's not meant to be floods in our world, there's not meant to be droughts and weeds, they're here because of our sin. So this life is hard now and it's all because of our sin in Genesis 3. The consequences of sin, firstly, death, secondly, broken human relationships, thirdly, a broken relationship with God, and fourthly, a broken creation. Now, my final point. Even here, at this lowest moment of the whole Bible, God's love and grace is at work. I've called it glimmers of grace. I was in a poetic mood late in the week. This passage, don't, don't miss this, this passage is mainly about sin. It's mainly about God's judgment. That's the main point. But even amongst all that, there are just little glimmers of grace. One example is at verse 21. Look there, right near the end. God doesn't have to do this, but he provides the clothes for them to wear to cover their shame. He says, get rid of those fig leaves. They're not doing the job right. I'm going to give you skins to wear instead. Someone actually, after my sermon this morning, who knows something about botany, said actually that's a real aspect of God's grace because apparently... If you wear a fig tree, for, fig leaf for too long, it gives you a nasty rash. So that is real grace. They've got toxins in them. 
I'd never heard that before, but he sent me a whole Wikipedia page on it. But anyway, <laughs> God was saving them from that. There's other little glimmers right through this chapter that just remind you, despite our sin, God is ready to show grace and mercy. And the greatest of those glimmers is there in verse 15. It's the key verse. Look there with me. So this is part of God's curse on the serpent for what he did. But God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, on the one hand, you could just take that as a general comment about how men and snakes don't get on. Because we know who the serpent actually is. And what this actually is, is the first prophecy in the whole Bible. God is promising, this is the first promise of God in the Bible. God is promising there will be a seed, it's singular, a descendant of Eve, who the devil will strike at, but that one will crush the devil once and for all. So this is the first pointer in the whole Bible towards what God would do to deal with the problem of sin. He would send Jesus to reverse Genesis 3. Jesus would come and deal with death and he would deal with sin and he would deal with the devil once and for all through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the serpent crusher. There's a great Colin Buchanan song we sometimes sing with the kids at kids' church and it talks about how Jesus is a death smasher and a sin crusher and they do those actions. I wish we sang that song more often. Too often we don't, we don't realise just how massive it is what Jesus did. He crushed the devil. That's what he did. Well, as I close, how do we respond to Genesis 3? Now, you might read Genesis 3 and you might think, well, I want to do better than Adam and Eve. I'm going to kick this sin thing once and for all. The thing is, you can't. From the moment Genesis 3 happened, we all caught the disease. We all have the disease. We are born sinners. So our response to Genesis 3 is not, first and foremost, pull up your socks, do better than Adam and Eve. Now, the response is, don't hide from God like they did. Turn to him, take responsibility for your sin, and seek his forgiveness. You see, we know the serpent crusher has come. In his death, Jesus has paid the price for your sin. In his resurrection, he has defeated death. And what do you need to do? You need to not hide from God. You need to stop justifying your sin and blaming other people. We need to own our sin, confess it to God, and take a hold of the gift of salvation he's given us in Jesus. Look at how Romans chapter 5 compares Adam and Jesus. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... And death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sin. So in the same way that, that, that death and sin came through Adam, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. We're all sinners because of Adam, but God's grace and forgiveness is available to anyone and everyone through another man, Jesus. I pray that you know that truth. But now, as forgiven sinners, Genesis 3 does actually show us how sin works. It shows us how Satan works to tempt us. It shows us how Satan throws doubt 
on God's goodness. It shows us how he distorts God's word and, and makes us doubt that what it says is true and right. So as a forgiven sinner, how do you resist the devil? You listen to the word of God. You listen to the word of God and you trust that God is good and you trust that his word is what we need and we never forget that God is good and his word tells us right and wrong. We want to be like the person in Psalm 1 and just compare it to Adam and Eve as we read it. How blessed is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. How do you resist the devil? You don't listen to his temptation, you don't listen to his words and you meditate on the word of God day and night. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the desert? And how did the devil tempt him? He tried to quote God's word at him, he tried to outsmart Jesus by misquoting and quoting the word of God. What did Jesus do back? He quoted God's word back at him. How do you resist the devil? By knowing God's word so well he can't trick us. But more than that, by actually believing that God's word is good and letting it decide right and wrong rather than thinking you can do it for yourself. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vital chapter of the Scriptures. We thank you for the way it shows us the heart of our problem. But Father, we thank you that you have sent the serpent crusher, that you have sent the one you promised, the seed of Eve, who has come and defeated sin and death and the devil once and for all. And we thank you that by owning our sin, taking responsibility for it and bringing it to you, we can find forgiveness in Christ. But now as forgiven sinners, help us to resist the devil. Help us not to listen to his words. But instead, help us to be people who meditate on your word day and night. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.